Today our scripture passages, I'm going to look at two of them together, uh, both from the Old Testament. Uh, and the first is from Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 4. Here's my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his teaching the nations will put their hope. And then another Old Testament passage, the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 33, verses 14 through 16. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good promise I made to the house of Judah and the house of Israel. In those days and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. He will do what is right and just in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. And this is the name by which he will be called, the Lord, our righteous Savior. I hope. I hope you feel better. I hope my team wins the game. I, I hope I get an A on that test. I, I hope she likes me. I hope their marriage makes it. I hope I get that raise. I hope there's world peace before Christmas. Every day we use that small magical word, hope. It's tough to live, even make it through one day without hope. So what is hope? Well, based upon the scriptures that I just read, based on the examples I just gave, I define hope like this. Hope is a vision for better days that changes us in the present. Hope is a vision of better days which changes us in the present. Hope is a vision for better days. There's, a, there's something up ahead, just around the corner. I, I can see it. It's not here yet. I don't have it yet. But it's good. And, and that good fortune, that, that hope we have, that good thing, isn't just abstract because it, it reaches in and it transforms us in how we live our lives in the present. Isn't that the way hope works? True hope? So, for example... If I want to get an A in that class, then hope will hopefully motivate me to study harder, to study well, to go in and talk to the professor or the teacher, to make sure I understand it so I can get that A that I'm hoping for. Or if I'm wanting a raise, I'm hoping for a raise, well, that hope should motivate me to, to do my job well, to go in early at work, to go the extra mile, to do my best to be a good employee. If I hope for world peace, I can start at home. I can stop raising my voice in frustration with my kids. I can be a better coworker or neighbor. I can calm myself when that person cuts me off in traffic. Hope. Hope is a vision for better days that changes us in the present. As a child, I knew full well this sort of hope. You know, because I had a, a vision, a hope that my parents were going to give me toys. You know, remember that? I remember uh, circling the things on catalogs or, or, or newspaper ads and something I would want, a BB gun 
or toy soldiers that I could kind of set up and I could pull snipe them off one by one with my BB gun or, or maybe the, the Hot Wheels racetrack with, with the electric remote control, did the loops. And I leave those things around. And it, my hope for better days with toys changed my attitude and my actions during the Christmas season. It, it even drove me to sometimes get a sneak peek at those gifts. I would look under my parents' bed, or I'd look in the closet and, you know, hope, hope for better days. Drove my actions in the present. Well, this first Sunday of Advent, we're going to be looking at the best gifts ever. Of course, the greatest gift of all is the gift of Jesus Christ, God's Son, who comes in the flesh and and gives his life for us, right? Identifies with us, gives his life for it. Us, but we're going to be looking at the best gifts ever, the, the gifts that Christ brings and makes available to all who will receive them. Hope and joy and peace and, and love. But we begin with hope. And to help us on our journey today, looking at hope, I want to introduce to you our, our tour guide, the prophet Jeremiah. And Jeremiah was a real figure of history. And around the year 627 B.C., when he was a teenager, probably 16 or 17, maybe a junior or sophomore, probably a junior in in high school age, a teenager, God comes to him and says this, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I pointed you as, as prophet to the nations. What a great thing for a young person to hear. Not child anymore, not adult yet trying to figure out who they are, their identity and all this. And God comes to him and says, I knew you before you were born. Before you were born, I had plans for you. I set you apart. I have a purpose for your life. That's that's something we should really want for our young people, isn't it? So let's go back to Jeremiah. Fast forward 40 years, and Jeremiah is still a spiritual leader for his community, but the context is a little bit different now. The nation of Israel is in crisis the year is six, or 587 B.C. And the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, maybe you recognize that name, and his troops, they've surrounded the capital city of Jerusalem and they're under siege. So they've cut off food and water. The people of, of Jerusalem are going to slowly starve to death. It's, it looks inevitable that they're going to be overrun and going to have to surrender. But Zedekiah, the king of Israel, is apparently a very proud and stubborn man. He thinks he can still win. He thinks that they can still come out on top. But that was not in the cards because God comes to Jeremiah and tells Jeremiah, go to the king and tell him this message. I'll paraphrase. It's over. Give up and give in. Nebuchadnezzar is going to come into the city and you will surrender. That's what's going to happen. So you can trust God and do it the easy way or you can do it the hard way. And Zedekiah, as we can see in Second Kings 25, does it the hard way. Now, there was an interesting dynamic happening at this time. And we see it throughout history with political leaders and, and kings and rulers, dictators. They tend to attract yes people, uh, psychophants, who surround themselves, who come along and they try to ingratiate themselves. They tell the leader or the king what, do they, what, what they want to hear. And this was happening. All these, these spiritual leaders and prophets are telling the king, don't listen to Jeremiah. He's a crackpot. He's a fraud. We will win because God is on our side. God is always on our side. But Jeremiah keeps warning the king. 
about these false prophets. Instead, he, he, in, in fact, he describes them this way. He says, they dress the wounds of my people as though they were not serious. They diminish the circumstances, the threats. Peace, peace, they say, when there in reality is no peace. See, so Jeremiah's basic message wasn't about the military odds. He's not saying this is not a military issue. It's more of a spiritual issue. As we read through Jeremiah, we see the problem here. The people of God have rejected the covenant of God, and they've, they've committed spiritual adultery in a sense. They've followed other gods, other, other, other religions for far too long. And so Jeremiah says, this is going to happen, but, 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 but trust God because eventually he'll bring us back out of exile. Zedekiah doesn't like the message. He sees Jeremiah as a traitor. He arrests him. He throws him into jail. Nice message of hope, isn't it? But in the midst of these, 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 these circumstances, as Jeremiah sits in his prison cell, he's been misunderstood. He's been, um, they haven't listened to him. He's been derided. He's a traitor in their eyes. He proclaims some of the most powerful words of hope in the Old Testament, words of, of hope. Isn't it interesting when you look at, look at uh, the Bible, so often some of the most inspiring words come from people in the worst circumstances? You have Jeremiah in a prison cell. You have the Apostle Paul in a prison cell wrote the book of Philippians and other, other letters as well. Jesus himself, you know, as he approaches the cross, as he hangs on the cross, beautiful, inspiring, profound words of hope and peace and joy and love. In fact, the chapters 30 through 33 of Jeremiah are often called the book of consolation or the book of hope. And, and, and notice how this book of consolations, this book of hope starts. And in chapter 30, this is what, how it starts. The days are coming, declares the Lord. The days are coming. All throughout the Old Testament, there are hints and clues from God and from the prophets that better days are coming. It looks like we're a tiny nation. It looks like Pharaoh and his armies are greater than us. It looks like so on and so forth. Goliath, all these, all these other, other uh, enemies and foes, bigger, stronger. It doesn't look good, but God over and over again throughout the Old Testament says the days are coming. Better days are ahead. So hope, as we think about it, begins with a promise, right? For the follower of Jesus Christ, hope always depends on the reliability of the one who makes their promise. It works that way in life, right? If somebody you know doesn't always keep their promises, says, I'm going to do this, you're like, yeah, I'll wait and see. I'll, see it. I'll believe it when I see it. But if somebody you trust says, I'm going to do this, I'm going to meet you here, and we're going to go here, you, you trust, you have hope because of the reliability of the person making the promise. Hope is like that. It's never based upon wishful thinking or positive feelings or even on how much faith we have. Hope is based on a God who is really there, a God who keeps his promises, a God who has left good and sufficient reasons for us to know him and to believe him and to trust in him. I mean, if the whole Jesus Christ thing is not reliable and trustworthy, we're just wasting our time. We should just leave and go do something else. You know, there's this, this idea, this theme or worldview that's percolated through our society for centuries, and it's risen its head again in our day. This whole idea that to, to, uh, to have faith means it's, it's a blind faith. There's no reason. It's, it's just emotion or you've been brainwashed or, or you're just trying to cope with the harsh realities of life by believing in something, clinging to something. That, that you're uneducated or irrational. 
But in the Bible, hope in God is never pulled out of thin air. It's based upon truth. It's based upon a particular history with God and a history that gives us glimpses of his character and provides reasons why we should trust him and place our hope in him. Hope is based upon God's promises to us. Next, hope is based uh, is, is about a person, right? The promises are fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. The biblical word for this person is Messiah. In, in verse 15 of the Jeremiah passage I read, this person is called a righteous branch who will sprout from David's line. Now, what does that mean? Well, throughout the Old Testament, David is, is held up as the greatest king of Israel. We also know from the Old Testament that David was a very flawed and imperfect person. There are a lot of things he would not have wanted broadcast about who he was. But he was also a warrior for justice and truth, and he was called a man after God's own heart. And toward the end of his life, and throughout the Old Testament story, God keeps promising, I'm going to raise up a king like David, but much better than David. And he will rule my people, and he will bless the whole earth. Take a look again at uh, verse 16, where it says, And his name will be called, what? The Lord our righteousness. Now, in the Bible, righteousness is a relational relational term. It's um, a person who is right with God and right with others. They do the right thing with God. They do the right thing with others. But unfortunately, the Bible also tells us that none of us do that. None of us are righteous. Some of us get it right part of the time. Some of us get it right most of the time. But that doesn't help us. You're either righteous or you're not. But this branch, this promised one, we're told, this Messiah, Jesus, will be called the the Lord our righteousness. Now, a couple of things about that phrase. First, it means he's going to get it right all the time. He'll get it right with God the Father. Always honor him. Always do it right. Never sin. And he'll do it right with others. He'll treat others with love and respect and tell them the truth. And he'll embody the truth. He'll, he'll be the truth to them. He'll treat them with grace, grace. And he'll challenge them when they need to be challenged. He'll always do it right with other people. But there's a second phrase, a part of that. The Lord, our righteousness. And the New Testament declares that Jesus takes our unrighteousness upon himself on the cross. And then he gives us his righteousness in its place. What a, what a great gift. What an exchange. It's like he, we take, he takes our, 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 our ugliness and our sin and our, all this crap. And he says, here, I'm going to give you something that's priceless and beautiful and, and, and wonderful. So hope is about a person, the Lord, our righteousness. Hope changes us in the present as well. Once you, once you start down the path of hope, truly understand hope, biblical hope, your life will be different. You'll change what you value. You'll change your perspective on things that are difficult or hard in your life. You'll change your perspective on what's going on in the world around us. You know, sometimes, I've got to be honest, sometimes it's better, it can feel better not to hope. Let me explain. Because when you close your heart off, you don't have to risk, and you don't have to be vulnerable. You see that sometimes in people's relationships. 
I'm going to close myself off to the hope of this relationship because if I go too far, I could get hurt. I'm vulnerable. But when we start hoping, truly hoping, our heart begins to burst with longing and potential and, and what the future can bring because it's something we want and long for. There's a pastor from Minnesota who wrote about how a childhood experience taught him something about hope. Uh, he grew up in Minnesota, big Vikings fan. And when he was 12 years old, he, he wrote about how he'd never been to a Vikings game. He and his father had watched the games from the cozy comfort of their their living room, and they watched 55,000 Minnesotans, this was before the new stadium, would uh, dress up in, in long dongs and, 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 and overalls and coveralls and snowmobile suits, and they would sit and watch the Vikings play outside, drinking coffee from plaid thermoses and filling the air with their frosty breath. But he didn't have hope for a real Vikings game. But then one day in early August, his dad announced that he had purchased two sets of season tickets for all the Vikings' home games. He was actually going to attend a real Vikings game in the cold with real men drinking hot chocolate from thermoses in the vastness of the Hubert Humphrey Stadium. You can tell how long ago this has been. Now, what do you think that kind of hope does to a 12-year-old boy? Well, it sets your heart pounding with enthusiasm. It opens your life to more joy and delight and adventure. But you also have to wait, right? You have to wait. You have to wait for the day to come. And he, he, he writes that the day finally came. He attended the game and he says, as the Bible promises, hope does not disappoint because the Vikings beat the Packers that day. Now notice how hope works in this story. There's a longing. A longing to experience something that he hasn't experienced, that he wants but he hasn't had. There's the promise of a father, right? There's a hope of something wonderful now from the promise. There's a trust that his father will keep his promise and that his word, he's just not yanking his chain. There's patience involved and his hope begins to change his perspective. It raises his joys. He begins to picture what it's going to be like. He begins to anticipate the experience. And that hope sustains him as he's waiting. For that day to come. You see what hope doesn't do? It does not resolve tension, does it? It increases tension. It raises tension. It draws this beautiful picture of future and says it's coming. It will be yours. The one who's promised is faithful and true and good. But you're going to have to wait and you're going to have to be patient. So if you've opened your heart to Jesus, he will give you a vision of better days. And those better days have come already in part, right? We live in the now, but not yet. You can call on the name of the Lord and receive and enter the promise of better days. And it's available today. The power of God, the redemption of Christ, love and grace and mercy are, are yours today if you simply trust in him. But once you do that, you really can't go back. You can't just sit in the living room and, and watch life go by on the TV screen. You have to live it fully and passionately and, and deeply because hope should change how we live in the present. As one of the characters says in the movie Shawshank Redemption, one of my favorite movies, hope is a dangerous thing. It can drive, it can drive you insane. And when you come to Christ, he will upend your life. 
he'll inject a, a massive dose of hope into your heart. You can't go back. Life, as you know, should be changed and different. This past week I read an account of a guy who, who uh, traveled to Cambodia and Thailand as part of a, a Christian ministry. And while he was there, he saw horrible, horrible things. Uh, the ministry rescues young girls and boys who are trapped in the global sex trade. And many of them had been prostitutes from a young age, but this ministry intervenes by setting up safe houses where they can find freedom and they can find faith in a loving father who does not abuse them or sell them. Uh, it helps them work through their shame and their guilt. It provides protection and education and housing and training. And this guy wrote about how he had seen these horrible things, but how he'd also been touched and deeply inspired by hope. Because he had watched these defiled and used children become new creatures, new creations in Christ. And he said, I cannot go back to my old life again. Now, he's back at home working with the same family and job and house, same church. But he's praying differently. He's using his time differently. He's investing differently. He has plans to go back. He cannot approach life the same way because he knows that with God, nothing is impossible that no one is beyond his reach, that there's no one who can't be redeemed, and that with God there is always, always hope. Better days are coming. When we believe that, we align our lives differently. And we don't have to go to Cambodia or Thailand to do that. Last thing I want to hit real quickly is hope causes us to risk, and we've already alluded to that. Let's go back to Jeremiah for a second. Jeremiah 32, and it's, again, it's the year 587 B.C. The Babylonian army is about ready to, to burst through. The situation is hopeless. And there's an interesting in, in, in exchange between Jeremiah and his uncle. His uncle comes in and says, um, I've got some land I want to sell you. Um, you're, you're next in line, um, so you have the first right of refusal. I want to sell you some land. Now, that's a horrible time to buy, Right? If we knew signs and we overrun with a foreign government and we'd all be drug, drug off to Siberia or whatever, you're not going to buy somebody's house. That would be stupid. It would be foolish. Why would you do that? But listen to what Jeremiah does. The word of the Lord came to me. Hananel, Hanamel, son of Shalem, your uncle, is going to come to you and say, Buy my field of Anathoth, because as nearest relative it is your right and duty to buy it. And he does it. He buys the land. Why? Because he believes in the promises of God. He's seen God's track record. He knows that God, when God says, I'm going to bring you back from exile, he believes it. And so he buys the land as if that's going to happen. He put his faith into practice. He put his hope into practice. He took a risk. And every day we're called to take risks because of the hope we have in Christ. They might be small. They might be mid-sized. They might be huge and life-altering. But we have to put our hope into practice. So I want to close with four questions for you to ponder. Is your hope centered in the person of Jesus Christ or in something else? As you have grown as a Christian, has your hope expanded? Has it stagnated? Has it diminished? How has hope ruined or changed your life? 
And what are you willing to risk because of who Jesus is and what he has done for us? Let's pray. Father, we're grateful that you are a God that we can trust. That you are a God who keeps his promises. And we've seen that time and again through the prophecies fulfilled in the person of Christ. And we know that ultimately, all your promises are fulfilled in him. And so, Lord, we put our hope not just in your promises, but we put our hope in Jesus. And we trust in him. And we thank you that he is our righteousness. So, Lord, may our hope change how we live our lives today and in the future, how we process things, whether it's a scary medical condition, it's a struggling marriage, a financial situation that's going the wrong direction, problems that work, problems with our, our kids or our grandkids, depression or anxiety, Lord, whatever our struggles may be, Lord, help us to to trust you with them and to have hope because hope is a, is a vision of a better future that changes how we are to live in the present. In Jesus' name, amen.